This is episode number seven. This podcast has cheated death so many times. <laughs> and we're back. Our next real good movie is Final Destination. Because of you, I'm still alive. In death, there are no accidents. No coincidences. And no escapes. Did it happen again? Did you see Todd die? You put this movie on our list uh, for the wheel of, of fun that we do after every episode. Why did this movie uh, make your short list? I was absolutely hoping that I would get the why question because uh, <laughs> up until this point, we've mainly covered kind of highly regarded movies or, or, or even films that could be viewed at, at the very least as pieces of art. Uh, <laughs> this is the first time we're covering something that's more a studio film, uh, you know, just trying to cash in the, I don't know, a teenage date audience or, or whatever, the, that kind of thing. But the short answer is <laughs> the, the reason that I put this on the list is uh, as you go along uh, with Final Destination, as you uh, watch Final Destination a couple of times or expand upon it and watch some of the sequels or, or tie-ins or whatever, um, it's a very, very interesting piece of work. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see what they do with this. Now, I don't want to fool anybody. They do the same thing over and over again. This is this is the yeah. exact format that they go for. It's it's always somebody has a premonition of death and then they find a they try to find different ways to cheat it and then it ends up kind of the same way as this one, but it's so mm -hmm. artfully done and it's so interesting and it's just so much fun that uh, I had to include it on the list because uh, for me it's just so fun to watch. Yeah, and as a big, you're a big horror movie guy, and yeah. we'll get into why this movie is a is a staple, and it is what it is, and and it's it's still you know mentioned by name, twenty two years later. <laughs> um, Final Destination, the Chinese title actually translated directly is "The Death God Comes," and <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll use that as a uh, a segue into tell everybody this conversation might include bits of about death and and the topic of death. So if you're if you're not privy to that information or you're not a fan i'll let you do with that what you will yeah maybe the final destination uh movie review won't be the best place for you, so. <laughs> the, the worst possible yeah place. absolutely <laughs> um before we get into the movie i did message like last week devin sawa great i messaged kerr smith who plays carter mm -hmm. and i messaged screenwriter jeffrey reddick all on instagram <laughs> and just like arnold they didn't return my call nobody got back with you i i honestly can't believe it i would imagine i i could see arnold being a little busy i even did look up to see what devin Sawa was doing now and uh and he's keeping himself busy as well whoever the other actor was and and the screenwriter yeah. I, there's no way those guys are doing anything at this point <laughs> it's like give, give us 10 minutes that's it but hey we'll keep trying every single movie absolutely. we're gonna keep trying absolutely okay. i i've actually this is the first time for this episode that i've ever seen this movie that's great that's kind of what i was hoping to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> i i had never seen final destination now i will say i did see final destination 3 i watched it out of the fact that everybody around that time 2006 was watching this movie talking about it uh roller coasters yada yada <laughs> and i watched that so i had kind of this background image of what i expected final destination to be a cheesy teen riddled uh, overly graphic movie. But when I watched this one, the final, not the final destination, because it's actually a title sequel, which is like, 
not something we'll talk about right now. <laughs> but this this movie subverted every expectation I have because of that sequel, and it made it a better movie. Um, so I, I actually I was really been itching to talk with anybody about this movie because there's so many theories like you said there's a lot of theories a lot of it's a very ambiguous movie where you can kind of make of it what you want yeah it goes a lot of places it it actually this movie could fail epically it could be very easy to to do that with this and and they don't because they explore so many avenues and they yeah it's it's pretty straightforward but Mm -hmm. they really kind of nail it on the head so (laughs) It was tough for me watching like the first time because I had to watch it as like a first time viewer mm-hmm. and I had to watch it like critically and answer the questions that we always the, the for the awards later on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was it it was tough. And I, I was happy that, you know, even with a critical lens on it so we can break it down. Um, this movie did hold its own. Yeah, it it absolutely uh, is able to hold its own. You don't need uh, the rest of the franchise to to watch this, which is which is kind of interesting because if you look at it, if you look at the history of it, and you look at some trivia and and, and all of that stuff, you look at what the pre production and, and and all of that was. They obviously didn't plan for a sequel or anything like that. They were going to call this movie Flight 180. That was going to be the title of it. You can't have a franchise based on on that title. I don't think you could do much with that unless you. Uh, I mean, yeah. you can't really Friday the Thirteenth it or anything. There's not so, much you can do with that. <laughs> so you're thinking the 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 maybe the title change was a studio note leaving it open for for sequels. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know. I I know this came out sometime in 2000, and then later we had September 11th. Yeah. Um, I I think this came out before that. Obviously, it would have been a a little bit of a different story if if that would have been around the same time. Yeah. But it, it was a good idea that they did that. I don't know why they ended on that. I don't know why they decided you know, to change the name of the movie. But yeah, it was, a, it was a very good decision. I don't feel like we would have even a sequel based on that. When I think of the title Final Destination, it's I get this image, and I think a lot of people do, of this just survival teen horror movie. And when you go back and watch the movie, as much as it is, and we'll talk about how what's aged and what's not aged about this movie, it very much is a teen drama or a mm-hmm. teen horror movie. But the subject matter is so intense or so interesting that you look past that. Well, they're kind of able to... You say subvert earlier, and, and they're kind of able to subvert. Like I, I like that word for this because that general line that you would go down that you kind of have to do in even Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer, where they have to really play up the romance. There's romance, and I mean not romance, but there's like you know couples in this. There's I guess two kind of important ones, and the movie doesn't rest on that. There's no, it's it's actually fine without that uh, B plot. It doesn't really enhance or hinder the story either way. So that they were able to do that with a with something that was probably marketed as like a teen date movie, you know, for the early 2000s, late 90s, whatever it is, is very interesting. Yeah, this this movie I was trying to compare it to other movies that came out around its time and. Uh, this is a brutal, impactful, unsettling film mm-hmm. that has this underlying sinister message and all this symbolism in this movie. It's it's really incredible how they were they were able to to do that in what again you said is is just a date movie. Yeah, it's really not a slasher. Uh, it has a kill count. It's got that whole vibe that they were cashing in in the in the late 90s and early 2000s with the sexy teen stars or, or yeah. whatever, you know, in, in the horror movie thing um, that was going on. But it's just played so different here. It's such a different angle that they went for. 
yeah. that they executed really well. A couple of weeks ago, you mentioned the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And when I was watching this episode, this this movie, I thought, I don't know much about the Twilight Zone, but the way you explain it, do you think this fits the mold of something like the Twilight Zone? It's funny that you say that. <laughs> this actually, yes, 100%. This is a, I, I don't know how long this movie is, but this is at least a 90 minute uh, Twilight Zone episode. And the reason that I say that is that this was originally a spec script for an X-Files episode, okay. for one. But two, there is a Twilight Zone episode from the original series. I think it was in the third season. Maybe I can't recall episode numbers or, or whatever. But the name of the episode was 22. And it was about a woman who keeps having a dream where she believes things are really going to happen. And then later those things start to unfold and they happen in, in real life. And then at the end of that episode, she has a dream about a plane exploding on takeoff. Yeah, it's directly a Twilight Zone episode, 100%. <laughs> Very interesting. I love the story. And it just goes to show you that no matter how interesting or, or original an idea seems, is that subject is there. And I'm glad Final Destination was able to take that subject from Twilight Zone and elaborate it and make it you know, an hour and 45 minute movie. This movie is, like you said, the late two thousand, late nineties, early two thousands had this feel, this uh, American Pie, not mm -hmm. another teen movie era, mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of movies that fit that. The opening scene of the movie, and this, I got big uh, Halloween H two O vibes. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, it was the initial. I guess it was like a an exposition almost, mm -hmm. where it kind of almost in a way foreshadows a lot of the deaths in the movie. Yeah, certainly. It, it, it gives you little hints, little clues. You have the shadow of the hanging and, 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 and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I also was reading that some character names in this movie mm -hmm. are directly taken from inspirations in the real world. I don't know a ton of them. You're probably much more well-versed, but uh, I did catch uh, Alfred Hitchcock for <laughs> Sean William Scott's character. I don't know if there's any more you wanted to call out. Interestingly enough, I I did notice there is a good deal of characters named after horror movie icons, whether that be screenwriters, whether that's actors or, or whatever. Yeah. There was somebody from the original production of Nosferatu that was written in here. Um, I'm not familiar with those character names well <laughs> enough to know that. But once you know that information, you go back and watch this movie. Of course, it, the names do seem a little out of place. Yeah. Some of the names are strange. Of course, you have... Alex and Terry and stuff like that, that, that are very common sounding, but then yeah. you have names like uh, Hitchcock and clear and stuff like that. So I noticed the name, I didn't really notice the names until I reading a little bit about that. It, it's really says something about this movie that they can make a movie like this with all those references in it. And we, we don't know what it because we, we don't expect those kind of references and that kind of film culture to be in a movie like final destination. Sure. And that's kind of what, separates it in my opinion they really are heavily influenced by horror and and yeah. and they they do pay homage but they have their original idea here and and they they execute that they really run with it it would be easy to say you know to point out the fact that there is a very similar twilight zone episode and, and things like that but mm -hmm. again we have the same thing with the truman show um that's that's pretty critically acclaimed you know that's not a studio horror movie um so so that's gonna happen uh, of course twilight zone was very very impactful and and those stories came from somewhere else as well more importantly you can see that the filmmakers and the screenwriters and and who was working on this movie really cared about the genre and what came before it absolutely it's, it's a really good homage 
uh, or paying tribute to all these legends that you may or may not have heard of in a movie that is, like you said, regarded as this throwaway horror movie that, you know, nobody takes seriously because it spawned five really crummy sequels. The The topic of death following these, these teenagers around is not something I have seen before Final Destination. Sure. It's something you almost expect to see executed very poorly on a Goosebumps episode or something like that. Mm. But what they do here and, and what they do with it, uh, they, uh, again, like I'm going to keep saying, they execute it very well. It's, it is executed very well. They, they cared about the production and, and, and what was going on. They cared about telling this story and the way that it unfolds, the way that everyone describes this as you know, the death scenes and, and all of this as Rube Goldberg machines. And I'm sorry, I probably mis- mispronounced that. He might be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, somebody's coming after me for that one. But um, they they really took some time fleshing this out and, and writing this. It's not your typical teen slasher. It's not Scream, which is also a great movie in my opinion. But it's it's something different. It's It literally is a breath of fresh air in a genre in a time period where it was oversaturated with, with the same thing. You're right. And I think that's what really helped its legacy and why it's still talked about is because it put a chokehold on that idea, which is to me, it was so fascinating watching this and trying to think to myself, well, what is death? Uh, You know, how is death? How does death deal the cards? The topic of it is it's addressed obviously in a billion movies, but not as an entity, as the villain of the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. And I do truly feel like this is almost uh, again, to bring up the Truman show, how we talked before in our Truman Show episode about how Truman Show is is a thing out there in the zeitgeist. You almost kind of hear it. You almost say it sometimes. I feel like I'm on the Truman Show, whatever. Yeah. The Final Destination has that same kind of thing around it. Sometimes you're in the bathroom shaving or something, and then you notice a small puddle on the floor, and then the scissors are sticking straight up, and you're like, damn, (laughs) am I I about the final destination myself? It's almost, uh, it kind of of has that same air to it. And, And I agree, maybe... Look, we could have taken any movie. What we've done so far and what I explained in the beginning is, you know, we could take these very critically acclaimed movies. There's thousands of them, at least, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that are very highly regarded. This is not one of those movies, but that's not the purpose. That's not what we're doing here. This is a well-constructed and well-executed film. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I'm saying film, but but it is. But this is done well, and that's why we're here talking about it. We talked last week about The Terminator being a very simple film. Mm-hmm. Not overly explaining the time travel bit, uh, not going into like these stories, these characters' backstories. And I like that this movie kind of starts you off at 100 miles an hour and doesn't skirt around the fact that something's up. And from the first like five to 10 minutes, which is the most crucial in a movie, mm-hmm. you're hooked. Is that what makes it good? Uh, is is that what makes it appealing to to me or or possibly you? The fact that it is pretty simple and it moves really quickly. Mm. Is it that there's not an overabundance of explanation and this and this? It would be very insanely easy to take this concept, uh, have a 30-minute scene where everybody has to sit around and explain what's happening and how they're going to cheat it and and what's going to happen. But instead, they take those in just little tiny snippets here and there to explain 
to you their theories of what's going on and whether that's uh, true or not. Like you said, it's very well constructed in the way they don't leave any questions that the average moviegoer couldn't have thought of. Because as I was watching this, they're going to, I thought they're going to pull him off the plane or he's going to get off the plane with the other seven. Mm -hmm. And doesn't the FBI want to know what, how this guy knows this? Mm -hmm. And you know what? They cover those bases. And even if it's for a small fraction of this movie, which it is, it really is important in making a whole encompassing story without holes in it. Absolutely. It was much better to me to, have that play out the way it did so so what we do instead of holding alex and 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 company uh for an extended period of time or bringing them back over and over again for questioning and, and all of this uh we make those fbi member i don't know the agents, FBI agents. there you go there you go <laughs> that's a word um <laughs> you make those fbi agents characters that, that pop up again throughout the movie and then of course later in, in the final scenes and stuff like that so yeah. yeah the way that that was done i i really like it was it was executed well a couple other things. It's the infusion of teen jock comedy mm-hmm. and American Pie vibes I got from this movie. I think it was mostly because Sean William Scott. I think that's what it was. <laughs> well, sure. You take Sean William Scott, put him in this movie, make him uh, somewhat of a main character here, but he's not top build. He's not on the on the cover box art or, or sorry. Uh... Like the uh, top billing or something. Oh, I lost you. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better. Okay, sorry. I don't know. Something came up. Yeah, you Sean take, William Scott. Sure. You, you take Sean William Scott and you, you put him in this movie. He's not, uh, his name's not a, across the top of the movie poster, but he is arguably probably one of the biggest things here. Uh, Devin Sawa had a, I think a pretty big like Nickelodeon type career when he was a little bit younger than this. I'm not too sure what Ali Carter was doing before that. And and then the other guy that was billed, Kerr Smith maybe is his name? Uh, yeah, the one I messaged on Instagram didn't answer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about that guy. I have no, <laughs> no idea what he does, but yeah. You, you take Sean William Scott and kind of just place him in this movie. Yeah. He's got a little bit of comic relief. He's he's there. He's a character. But we're not making a big deal about it. He's not the focal point here. I really like that a lot. And and I like that he was probably around the top of his game. I feel like American Pie came out a year or two before this. Those five years of my life are so just all one year that I couldn't tell you what came out when because I didn't really pay attention to it. And those American Pie movies were just a little bit too old for me. Okay. So American Pie comes out in 1999, so okay. a year before this. Uh, so you would definitely think American Pie being the huge hit that it was, Sean William Scott would definitely be at least billed on the movie poster, but he wasn't. So I love that. That's another thing that I like about this movie. They know what they're going for. They're not they're not trying to play off of that, hey, this is the next Scream. This is the next I Know What You Did Last Summer. This has uh, stars from American Pie in it. They're not doing that. They don't care about that. Yes, that's not important here. That's a very good point because I'm sure we'll get into a recap casting down the road about what could have been but the reason i enjoyed this movie and i have a couple pointers here like i said i watched number three first this this one not overly graphic and this series kind of turns it devolves into a twisted fantasy gore and this happens to a lot of franchises i don't know if you noticed i the first one i can think of is is saw how the first movie starts off strong and then devolves into like this fantasy gore porn not a huge fan of that and i loved that this one was not dulled down but it was not reliant on the graphicness of the deaths. Well, it hits those perfect beats where you definitely can be on. Un- 
comfortable with the death scenes. There's blood and gore and viscera and, and, and whatever. But at the same time, it's it's not played for for no reason. Um, it's pretty, fits the scenes well, fits the, the movie well and the overall tone. It doesn't feel gratuitous. And then speaking of that, you know, uh, movies that come out in this time, in this time frame, a little less heavy on plot, a little less heavy on, on what's going on uh, to make it all tie in. And, and, and they just need a killer. That's really what's important here. They just need somebody to be wandering around killing everybody. And with the exception of Scream, I don't want to take anything uh, sure. away from Scream because that is pretty brilliant. <laughs> but uh, but with the exception of that, most of them just, just need that killer. And, and like you said earlier, we don't have a killer here. The killer is just death. <laughs> and that's it's amazing. So it it's amazing. Yeah. So it makes it so fun. Yeah, they make it fun. They make it uh, like an, an, an unnatural, but like a supernatural force. I wanted to talk a, a little bit because I know you probably have heard theories or read theories or you have your own decision made on what this movie represents. It's a very ambiguous movie. Like I said, you can kind of the ending's not set in stone. The whole moral of the story, death here and there, it's it's kind of up for you to decide. And so I wanted to, to see what you thought. Was it all like an allegory or a metaphor for something or was it just straight up death? I like to think of it as just straight up death. I like to think of it as there was just, as they said, a design. I I kind of want to take away the word design and just make it more of a predetermined uh, event that was going to happen. And since that got cheated or since that got rearranged or whatever, that the inevitability of these people dying was just going to happen. They may have found a way to extend their fate for a little bit longer, but but yeah, that's my takeaway from it is that there was no force in place. They were just meant to die and this event was meant to happen and it didn't for those reasons. Now, if you think it's all just coincidental, maybe your thoughts on the, the toilet water for one, um, <laughs> going back into the toilet, mm -hmm. I thought, wow, what a supernatural presence that is probably more terrifying than anything. And that's death itself. It's interesting. It's, it's very interesting that they did that. If you watch these later sequels, really, if you watch the rest of this movie, and then the later sequels, that's really the only time anything like that happens, which is really cool. Uh, it would be very easy for them to kind of do that with each one of these, give us a little bit of a fake out, have it have death have to um, climb over mountains to make these things happen. And, and while they do, there's not any supernatural elements to it other than this one isolated event. So it makes you wonder either one, are they all supernatural? And is that the only time that you're seeing it in a supernatural light did it begin supernatural and then uh, went another way i have no clue what, what. so interesting and yeah, this movie really doesn't is. straight up it doesn't smack you in the face with it and i loved the fact that i get to decide what it is yeah, it leaves a lot open for you to interpret. Interpret, sorry, interpret yeah. <laughs> yourself. Um, you can interpret this in many ways. You can also. It would be easy to take this movie and take what they feel like they've discovered about death's design and skipping over one, going to another, and saving and, and taking it and, and going in the complete opposite direction. Because as we see. Sometimes they think they've skipped death or they've cheated death and then it comes yeah. right back around. It's something that the myth and the straightforward who's who's going next and, and you can kind of follow it, like the path, the seating chart on the plane, you can kind of follow it and, and kind of deduct who's next. Whereas the, the later movies, they try to break it down or they try to elaborate on it. They make it 
twists and turns about what death can and can't do, including murder. And mm-hmm. that, that was just not my thing. So to see it in its pure natural, you decide kind of form, I, I absolutely really enjoyed it. And I, and I wanted, because I have my own theories, <laughs> I want, I found a couple online. I want to run them by you. Oh yeah. I'd you, love to hear these. He can see death and that's his superpower. But this is the one instance where it was affecting him directly. And these are the consequences of him being able to see death. Again, that's out there. That is so loosely. I decided okay. I made that up in two days. Uh, the other one, it's his irrational fear of flying. He mm-hmm. made up the whole story to help him cope with a seven hour flight. Maybe. Sure. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. can, I can definitely see that. I'm 100% guilty of doing the same kind of thing. I have some kind of underlining uh, generalized anxiety with, with things uh, like that, where uh, it's easier for me to say, shit, I, I, I don't want to get on the highway and drive for two hours right now. Um, what if something happens? Oh God, yeah. I <laughs> wreck in my mind. I'm just going to stay home today instead. Yeah, it's, it's something, it's some kind of worst case scenario and, and i think like you said it's it's human nature to think that way so could it be a, a coping mechanism we've been both been watching moon knight the mind is a very powerful thing yeah. and we'll get yeah. to moon knight later but uh it's it's pretty wild a fan theory i read on reddit death was giving these premonitions to the main character as a way of having fun with these people i like and- that <laughs> I thought, wow, this movie is already, there are some parts like the plane crash that are hard to stomach. They're they're hard to watch. They're very vivid, very graphic and almost unsettling as I was watching it. Um, and then to think of what death is doing to these people and playing it as a game made it even more sinister than I could, my mind could even think. Yeah, I, I do kind of like that theory i like that death is force that's uh has some sort of enjoyment <laughs> that that yeah. wants some sort of enjoyment out of doing its job or or whatever maybe uh office work has gotten a little too mundane and it's getting boring <laughs> to just say all right you're gonna choke on a, a piece of chicken tonight at 12 o'clock and then somebody <laughs> does and it goes i don't know let me give somebody some foresight and then see what they do with it and then kill them in the long run anyway <laughs> It's true. Instead of getting up and putting paper in a, in a waste basket, you, you crumple it up in a ball and you shoot. It's uh-huh. more fun. It's absolutely more fun. And it makes you, it, it kind of begs the question, how many times have you cheated death and you didn't even know? It? That's true. Then that's deep. That is really deep. <laughs> this movie is, it's incredible. What, what I always thought was just some, some tacky teen horror movie with no premise. It can get you thinking so deep about a subject you don't want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You take some of those other kind of popular at the time teen slasher franchises and and they don't do much to really make you think existentially like this. Um, Even something as well done as Scream, which is a great movie and and I really enjoy Scream more or less just pays a lot of homage and, and stuff like that as opposed to really has this unique idea that really makes you think couldn't agree more i'm i'm thinking more about this movie and maybe truman show than i did about anything we've talked about so far <laughs> Likewise. so not interesting the other flip side to death having fun was maybe it was a good entity the, the opposite the opposing force of death that was sabotaging death's plan and it was kind of a, a twisted game between death and, and life so it's like a mothman prophecy ordeal i don't know if you're super i've seen that, with that. Yeah. Um, I, 
I just became aware of that uh, pretty recently, but I did see the Mothman Prophecy movie when it came out uh, for for some odd reason. I have no clue why. But Was that the, the one with Richard Gere? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah, I've seen uh, it. For very sure. very odd movie. Very interesting, but um, definitely won't come up on this podcast. I can uh, pretty much assure you. But True. Uh, but uh, maybe if we get a listener request. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like that was kind of the same way. Um, it kind of made you think this Mothman would show up at these events. Is the Mothman there to to help or to warn people, or is the Mothman there causing the devastation? You don't really know. Yeah, it was really that was my favorite my favorite theory because I like the 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 head to head of death and life just just going head to head is really interesting. <laughs> we could go to awards now and start with a best scene. If you have uh, obviously your favorite scene, you've seen this movie how many times? Oh God, who knows? At at least uh, fifty. <laughs> okay, at least fifty. I I can honestly say that this movie has an intense, insane rewatchability. So I'll start by saying that, but I'll, I'll let uh, I'll let you go ahead with best scene. Yeah, and let me just piggyback on your last statement. This movie does really have a a great rewatchability factor. Maybe not the next day, the next week or something like that, but but to pull this movie out every six months or a year or two years or something like that is you're really going to enjoy it. You're going to see something new for the first time. You're going to come up with a new theory, whatever. This is an enjoyable film, but w- when it comes to best scene, my favorite scene in this particular movie is a death scene and it's actually whenever terry gets killed when terry is fighting with carter and yelling at him the bus comes out of absolutely nowhere uh we do get that foreshadow from alex in the window of the cafe they're sitting at but even in this viewing i by the time that her death scene comes i've already forgotten about the foreshadow <laughs> it just kind of <laughs> out of nowhere everyone's sprayed with blood in the face and it's just so indicative of this movie and i i really like that scene a lot it's really something and unfortunately you only get this once watching this movie for the first time like I did the other night you're just sitting there you're like oh it's just a couple's quarrel how cute yada yada and then you blink and it's done it's over and you're right it did catch me off guard I last time I was caught off guard by a movie I couldn't even tell you it was something I was actually really impressed that a movie could make me say I think I said out loud holy shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it definitely gives you those vibes and to point out the death scenes just for a second I know yeah. we're in awards but uh, the death scenes here are very interesting because the way that they're played out are unique to this movie to this franchise really yeah it becomes later a little more gore intensified absolutely gore intensified and and you knew what was going to happen and this and this but they really do kind of extend these scenes out a little bit longer whenever you go back and rewatch them than you would imagine it almost looks like every single death scene that they've cheated death in that instance and then no they don't yeah (laughs) it's a quick uh, double take jeez We'll introduce a new award for this best best death scene. Uh, man, I have to say the teacher uh, with the burning house and the knife really got it the worst. She really, really got messed up. Hers was a little similar to the first one in, in that way that it didn't just happen all at once. It really kind of played out with, I I think the, the first death scene was Todd, I think his name was. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah Todd, who kind of gets hung in the bathroom there. Hers is, is definitely more drawn out, but it, it plays the same way where you almost get that feeling, shit, is she somehow going to survive this and then be cheated death? Yeah, she's going to have to go to the emergency room and get the knife pulled out of her chest or whatever, but it's almost looking like everything might be okay for a second, 
No, it's not. It really, I like we said, subvert. I think seems to be the the theme here because you thinking one thing and then bam, you think Terry's fine in the street, crossing the street after yelling at her boyfriend. Guess what? She's not. <laughs> and I, I applaud it for that to be able to do that and get away with it and not make me angry is <laughs> it's it's tough to do in a horror movie without sounding without seeming too tacky or, or cheesy. Best scene. F- for myself, the initial before he boards the plane was one of the most interesting scenes. The arrival clock behind him when he's checking in at the desk, switching to terminal. He focuses on the name, the word terminal. Uh, John Denver, who he says on the toilet, it dies in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And the realization of death, it's you see those those symbols at, at what point do you say well okay i'm not getting on this flight yeah well exactly that's that's kind of i think what i was trying to allude to before you do have that balance in your life where you see or feel certain things everyone can relate to that everyone can relate to being nervous about something that seems sure. dangerous or, or dangerous to you at least and then you look for maybe these opportunities to say, should I just get up and walk out of this and not do this right now? Of course, that's what bravery is, going ahead and doing it in, in the face of, of that fear, which all of us don't possess, uh, me included. <laughs> but um, but you definitely have to ask yourself, you know, in those situations, what's, what's the best choice for me here? Do I go ahead and do it and go have a, a great time in, in Paris with my class? Do I possibly die on this airplane right now? It's a tough um, call for our young, our young Alex. The other choice I had was the mortician scene where the main characters are introduced to death. Mm-hmm. It's not a boring scene like you would expect out of two, two teenage kids roaming around a funeral home at night. You're caught off guard by Tony Todd, who appears as... What I believe, he's known for Candyman. He already has his his hook in, pun intended, (laughs) in the horror genre. And his presence on screen is unlike anything else in this movie. There, it's it's eerie, it's unsettling. Every word that comes out of his mouth is like it doesn't fit the other characters in a good way. It breaks the mold of every other character in the movie and makes him stand out. It's so interesting that you talk about Tony Todd right now. And the character's name is uh, Bloodworth in this movie, which I, I absolutely love. It's a wonderful name. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a comic book villain. But um, he is my favorite actor and character in this movie, which, sorry to jump ahead. Oh, no, I honestly, award, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get rid of that award right now. Best character. I think we both agreed that oh, it's yeah. Tony Todd. But his, his presence on screen and that voice, God, what I wouldn't do to have that man's voice. It's comforting and terrifying voice at the same time. When I hear him speak, it I have to listen to whatever he's saying. He's such a wonderful public speaker. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a wonderful actor. And as you said, he's got his roots in the horror uh, community already. He was, as you said, Candyman. He was in The Crow. He was in uh, 1980 remake of Night of the Living Dead. And that voice just, he should narrate every single horror movie, in my opinion. But yeah, it's it's it adds an even further level of mythology and kind of mystery to what is death. And as he as he explains it while he's mid autopsy and he does come up later in the franchise which i i don't know how many of these movies you've seen i guess only this one and three at this point one in one in three i uh have seen every one of these movies a a couple of times at least just because they're fun Uh, people talk popcorn movies these are my ultimate popcorn movies but uh, they're a lot of fun to me and he does come up again later in the franchise which is 
really kind of the greatest parts of those movies whenever he does pop back up. I might actually watch the sequels because yeah, of him. You totally should. <laughs> Worst scene? I, I watched this one time, and like I said before, I have to watch it both critically and as a first-time viewer, so I have to take it all in and then analyze it. So I'm sure it was a lot easier for you. There must be a part of the movie where you didn't want, really, you kind of fall out of it. I, upon further viewings, I'm sure I'll get to a part of the movie where I'm like, well, maybe this scene. And I did write down that there's a garage scene where um, she explains a statue. Uh, Ali Larder's character explains to Alex about the statue in her garage. I thought it, it's like you said, there's that love story, that B story mm-hmm. that doesn't need to exist in this story, but it does. Again, interesting that you say that as well. You don't see much of it played out through this movie. And there's definitely, it, it ends that way. And you almost feel like it, it's undeserving. We get them going through what they're going through, which I guess in a traumatic experience and you have somebody around you, especially somebody as attractive as those two, you're probably maybe going to develop some feelings here and there. I I can understand that, but I I don't feel like it's earned once we get to the part where she's calling him baby and things like that. I, I feel like it comes out of nowhere. So I can completely agree with that the very end of the movie where they decide to become a couple, I I feel like that's okay. Before that, yeah, it seems a little odd and out of place, but it seems, again, like a studio note. It seems like something where they said, play up the romance. These two have got to be a couple. These are our leads. They've got to be in love in this thing. Uh, This is for teens going, you know, on dates to see a movie. So we've got to have that in there. I don't know because I don't know the screenwriters that well, but it feels like a studio note. Yeah. The last scene as well. I mean, maybe they have to have some dating chemistry because of sequels again like you said i think it's just coming down to studio notes this is the second movie these studios got to get their hands out of these movies man <laughs> well this is absolutely a product of the studio i i'd say they they made out on the screenplay here in their execution yeah. but you can see this is a studio movie this wasn't an, a super artful interpretation of something but yeah. but it came across well <laughs> what's your worst scene so i don't particularly enjoy the scene where everyone's together in the car before we get to the railroad tracks i feel like it could be cut out or shaved down to a 10 second thing and still come across with the same effect i don't like the way that we have to view the characters there i don't like the way that we it makes me hate carter to tell you the truth and 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 i know carter is supposed to come across as an asshole i get the whole thing with him And I get where it comes back around towards the end and everything. But I don't like that depiction of him in that scene. I don't like how long it plays out. And I don't like how I have to be there to get to that uh, railroad scene. So for those reasons, that's the worst scene for me. It feels kind of out of place. If they just turned the excitement down a little bit and they made it just a casual drive with him coming to terms and maybe he drives into oncoming traffic once and swerves out flirts with death a little bit. I think uh, you, you definitely plead a great case for that scene as being uh, one of the weaker points in this movie. Sure. And I think if I was the one writing it, the way that I would see it to make it a little more interesting or, or make it flow a little better in my opinion would maybe be to have him in that car in in that situation that they're in. And then they kind of allude to it, but they don't really execute on it where where he says, you know, well, I'm not next or I'm not going to die or my fate's sealed or, or whatever. Let him really 
try to slam into the side of a building and then let that not happen or something, you know, really play that out, really go for it if, if that's what we're going to do. But it feels a little too jumbled, a little too much of a bridge to get to the next scene. We got to sit down and rewrite these bad scenes and we got to <laughs> rewrite bad movies because I think that's that's our niche. I, I, I can agree with that. Recasting roles. What I read is that Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, who were later cast in Spider-Man, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary today yes. as of recording. Is this movie too much star power if Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst are in it? I can see Kirsten Dunst in this movie. I feel like she's the right level of... Look, Kirsten Dunst is an A-list actress, or at least was at the time. Kirsten Dunst is a great actress. She can hold her own, but but she feels more in line with kind of what Ali Carter does here, uh, or... or Larder. There we go. Oh, there you go. Okay. She feels more in line with the chops of that actress, in my opinion. And I do have a an emotional connection to her, kind of the same that I have to to this actress that plays Clear here. Uh, she is again stunning and, and captivating on screen, and sure. I feel like can convey these emotions well. Um, I can see Kirsten Dunst in this movie, absolutely. Tobey Maguire as Alex, I feel like he's a little too classically trained or something to really pull this off. This needs to be a little campy. We he would to- make it a little more Peter Parker yes. <laughs> than Alex. Yeah, you kind of see the pain behind his eyes a little too much. You kind of see uh, that he's a small guy in the big city. I- I don't know. I don't see Tobey Maguire pulling this off. I see Devin Sawa. Who do you pick? (laughs) (laughs) So you can't have Devin Sawa. Who who do you, do you have any, any in mind that you, uh, that popped out at you? I I have three in mind for, um, for, for three different roles, but for Alex, yes, absolutely. I'd love to see Macaulay Culkin in this role. Oh, what a, what a, that would be quite a rebirth, uh, you know, 10 years after, um, home alone too. You're right. He's in the the right, the right age group. Um, yeah. What made you think of him later? He, he did start trying to break into some of these more, I, I don't know, different roles, trying to distance himself from that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Uh, really, it was just kind of the age range that made me think of him at first. I was thinking how old Devin Sulla is, and in, in, in my mind, he's in his early 40s, something like that, under 45, I would imagine. Yeah. And I think Macaulay Culkin's right around that same age. So that's really where he came to mind. Uh, somebody like Joshua Jackson could also be interesting in this role, but but I definitely my vote was on Macaulay Culkin. I think that he's got the right level of campiness. Definitely that great uh, kind of same thing that Devin Sawa has, where you know him from somewhere, from being a child actor and and girls having a crush on him from Teen Beat magazine or something yeah. in the in the early '90s. But let him kind of come and do this rebirth now. Uh, that's what I liked about Macaulay Culkin. Very interesting choice. Very interesting choice. I just wrote down, there was a, a part where Sean William Scott was on screen and I said to my wife, he kind of reminds me of like, he was like that generation's Ryan Reynolds in this sort of comedy, but he can be serious at the same time. So I'm, I'm putting uh, Ryan Reynolds in Sean William Scott's position because I can see Ryan Reynolds jumping around an airport with a New York Rangers jersey on. 100%. Ryan Reynolds would do a wonderful job in this role uh, and and be that kind of shining star there in the background that doesn't really take away from the movie by how great he is, but but still... But he's the star power in this movie. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
him and Tony Todd. What other recasting you got? So really quick uh, for clear, I think Katie Holmes would be interesting. Okay. She definitely couldn't execute the same, yeah. <laughs> the, the same. Uh, but I think she could be interesting in this. And she was at uh, a, a very good place in 99, 2000, 2001. So for that reason, uh, I chose her. And then the only other one that I wanted to talk about was the same one that you recast. Uh, and I thought it would be very interesting to see James Franco in the role that James uh, Franco. Yeah, Cause this would be probably well after uh, freaks and geeks. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well after, cause I couldn't really put in a year on freaks and geeks. Yeah. Early, early James Franco is, yeah. You know what? He, he plays like that, that Harry Osborne character very well, but uh, he can also be, he has like a silly goofy Seth Rogen side to him that he can fit the mold of if he needs to be serious or goofy pineapple express. So. Mm-hmm. And those are coming off uh, right around the same time. Actually. I just looked, uh, Oh, 99 to 2000 was Freaks and Geeks. So, uh, As always, we try to fit Nick Cage into this movie. Where do you put Nick Cage? It's so odd to put Nick Cage in this movie. It's been so easy up until this point to throw Nick Cage into one of these things and see what he would do with it. Yeah. I feel like the only opportunity, most likely given the age factor, sure. <laughs> obviously would be one of the FBI agents. But I don't see Nick Cage doing one of those roles very well. I don't... Yeah. There's not much for him to work with on that. So the only other role that I could see, and I'm not suggesting that he would do a better job because he absolutely would not, but <laughs> Bloodworth. Bloodworth. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I totally agree that he he could fit the part, but he does not do it like Tony Todd does. My choice was to have him improvise all his french lines and play the french teacher that gets back on the plane before it explodes that would be a nice little cameo in the beginning and then kill him off in the first few minutes sure (laughs) not a major character you don't need to outshine because Mm -hmm. what we have right now is a, a really well moving movie and i don't want to interrupt that with some some goofy nicholas cage what is age the best uh i didn't really think of anything uh except the agent's name was agent shrek okay that has aged the best because everybody loves shrek absolutely shrek is uh so hot these days but uh, <laughs> so what, what what's your choice um i'm just gonna go with the the whole franchise and and again we we kind of touched on it already this is the pinnacle of the franchise for me it goes in some really odd places from here but it's still a whole lot of fun worth watching re-watching and, and everything this is just a fun concept. Uh, the whole franchise for me has aged very well. It's it's something I can go back to over and over again. So for that reason, I pick the entire franchise. Good answer. And the fact that they're still making them today only <laughs> supports your case. I read, I don't know how true it is, Final Destination 6 is in development, which means a bajillion different things. So. I'm sure it has to be. There's no way with as much fun as these are and the money that they pull in that they're not at least trying to make it sense. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, most quotable line. I'll let you go ahead because I got one that really stood out. Well, I'm glad you have one. I don't really have one at all. There's not any lines from this movie that stick out to me other than maybe the whole dialogue that Bloodworth has. But uh, aside from that, I just kind of liked the the two lines of the flight attendant and Alex where the flight attendant says, we'll remove you from this aircraft. And then Alex says, fuck you, I'll remove myself. Maybe not super quotable, just a fun line. 
Yeah, definitely not something you want to say on an airplane for oh, sure. Uh, my quote, and you said Bloodworth, and like you said, everything he's out of his mouth is magic. But there was one line at the very end when he talks about how death works and like the real nature behind death. And he says, you don't want to fuck with that Mac daddy. But remember the risk of cheating the plan of disrespecting the design could incite a fury that could terrorize even the Grim Reaper. And you don't even want to fuck with that Mac daddy. I, I had a laugh and I, I knew I wasn't supposed to laugh. But the delivery of that line at a, was just something else and next level. And probably, again, not something I'm going to say in my everyday day-to-day life. Caught me off guard. You could find a way to interject that into every conversation you have. <laughs> and that would only make the conversation better. But I agree with you there. Uh, that's a that's a very good line. And that's why the casting of Tony Todd is is kind of essential to this movie if you think about it. He's got that that thing about him where he's serious, scary kind of actor, and he's got this voice that just commands the entire room and everything. But he's campy as hell. He's funny too. <laughs> there's there's something about him that even somebody like Nick Cage couldn't hold a candle to because he can't pull off that same vibe. What piece of movie memorabilia would you keep from this film? I was racking my brain. I forgot about this question, as you always do. Now, I believe it or not, I did as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do believe it. I do. Uh, I will say real quick that Sean William Scott's hockey jersey. I'm a big hockey fan. His jersey is the old fashioned Lady Liberty jersey. Anybody listening to this podcast that knows hockey jerseys will know that that jersey's a beaut. Is it a Rangers jersey? Yeah, the New York oh, Rangers. Yeah. They had these jerseys in that time that had like the the face of the Statue of Liberty and. It was one of their like limited time things. And for that reason alone, I'm taking that jersey. Wow. That's that's a wonderful uh, reason to take that movie prop. And it's a beautiful jersey. I <laughs> there. Wonderful. I like the the whole way that this movie looks. Now, you don't have a lot of people wearing jerseys, especially now. Maybe now you will since the 90s are coming back into fashion and everything. True. But hockey jerseys are... Uh, very large, very <laughs> oversized. Uh, yeah. You said you're a big Kevin Smith fan. Yeah, yeah. When is he not wearing a hockey jersey? That's what that's what Kevin Smith wears, jorts and hockey jerseys. So that's yeah. his, that's his whole aesthetic. It timestamps the movie with the cast, the outfits and everything, but it also timestamps or stamps the location of the movie. Like, hey, this is taken in New York. It's taking place. So if I have to pick one off the top of my head, what I'm going to go with is, I did notice this in the movie, so I didn't think far enough ahead to say this is what I'm going to take as a prop. But what I do want to take now that I think about it is the poster out of Alex's bedroom for the movie Pecker, which is a 1998 Edward Norton movie. I don't, or sorry, Edward Furlong movie. My bad. Oh, Edward Furlong, even rarer. Not Norton. That also has Christina Ricci in it, which I love the tie in there because we're we've got a Christina Ricci poster. Devin Sawa was Justin Casper co-starring Christina Ricci. So it's a weird paradox going on there on the wall. Is this a character from a movie? Is this something? I don't know. I'm just coming up with that now off the top of my head. But I want that movie poster in my room. Now, this is the most important question. What do we rank this film out of 10 and why? I will start by saying, for me, it's a 7.5. It's not 
the end all be all of horror movies. There are better movies out there, but the the pacing of this film, the structure of the story, and and it is a truly unique story in yeah. itself. It's not something you see all the time, and it's hard to say that it's not one of the best horror movies when you watch it for the first time and say, wow, this movie that I was expecting pure garbage, n- no offense. Oh yeah. None it day. turned out to be one of the most fun times I've had watching a movie recently. I, I can't put it at an eight because there's a certain tier of movies that it may be, Oh, after rewatching it, we'll have to revisit. We'll have to do <laughs> final destination part two. It could change because I know I'm going to run a rewatch this movie. I know there's more to it. There's more to see on a second time. And the fact that I was still thinking about this film and it's ambiguous in nature two days, three days after the fact means there's there's definitely substance and there's it's worth watching. Yeah. And to piggyback on on your score and review there, um, I personally am going to score it a little higher. Uh, I feel like that was a given from from the beginning but the the reasons that you give and the reasons that that I do uh, look whenever we open this thing whenever we first started talking about this in this dialogue that we're having right now I threw it out there this is not highbrow entertainment this is a low bar um, this is a a studio teen slasher franchise we shouldn't be expecting much out of this movie at all if you take something like I have said before, I know what you did last summer. It's probably going to be much lower for me. I do enjoy those movies, and I sure as hell enjoy loving watching Jennifer Love Hewitt on screen. But this movie, uh, for me, has a lot of nostalgia. It has a lot of fun. Um, it takes me right back to 2000, 2001, that time period in life. Um, I could definitely 100% see why somebody would not even like these movies. I take no offense whatsoever to that. I personally enjoy these a lot for the reasons that I've given and for what we've sat here and talked about throughout the discussion of this movie. But again, I don't see it as highbrow cinema. You're Mm -hmm. not going to talk about Citizen Kane, The Godfather, and then Final Destination. It just doesn't come up in the same conversation, and I completely understand that. With that being said, I think from the very beginning of this podcast, we understand each other well enough to know that I'm kind of on that opposite end of the spectrum. While I do enjoy watching movies a great deal, and I watch almost a movie a day, and I try to educate myself on on movie history and cinema and all of these things, I'm not the biggest fan of what's considered timeless classics and things of that nature. I don't want to see the Francis Ford Coppola and the Martin Scorsese movies. That's not what I'm into. Am I going to sit here and watch them and then talk about them? 100%. Am I going to love every single one of them that we do? Probably not. But am I going to find something to sit here and talk about with you? Yes, because that is absolutely what we're doing. So so no apologies needed for your <laughs> score whatsoever. I think a 7.5, if that was your score, is actually yep. pretty damn good for what this movie is. Again, for me, this is a popcorn movie, and this is my favorite of the popcorn movies. For all of those reasons that I just said and everything that I just discussed, I'm giving this a 9.0. Oh, man. I <laughs> thought for sure this was going to be your 10. You thought this would be my 10? Look, it, the jury's still out. We, It's going to be a surprise when you get a yes, 10. Yes, it, it will be. We're on 10 watch now. Yeah. This is the segment called 10 watch. So yeah. It's coming at some point, I, I assure you. But uh, what it is might surprise you. 
<laughs> Interesting. So we got a nine, we got a 7.5. Uh, I'm going to say if you're looking for a good horror movie that really takes you back to the year 2000, check out Final Destination. It's both of us are recommending it. The same way I introduced you to Knives Out, I want to thank you for telling me about this movie or recommending this movie, putting it on the wheel so that we could uh, have this conversation. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you watching it and having this conversation with me about it. Well, that has been another successful conversation on real good movies. Share this podcast or however you're listening to it. Tell people about it so we can make that money. And uh, that's it for real good movies. I'm Jer. And I'm Dan. We have a plane to catch. We'll see you guys later. Moving on, Carter. And if you want to waste your life beating the shit out of Alex every time you see him, then you can just drop fucking dead. Oh.